schedule to be on, on it this long. But the Lord just kept giving us treasures here. And I hope it's been as big of a blessing to you as it has to me. John 14, we've been discussing in verse number 12, has been our starting point for this, <clears throat> this section or this series from John 14 about the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. And I want to reiterate today, I don't think there's any part of John 14 or 15 or 16 and honestly 17 that you should take away from that verse or separate from that verse because I think everything that follows this verse um, in these chapters right here, 14, 15, 16, and 17, really gives us the key to how these great works are going to take place. And of course, we've talked about four specific things. We talked about powerful prayer. The Holy Spirit um, enables us and shows us how to pray and empowers our prayer. Then Jesus talked about obedience. We called it passionate obedience. It's obedience motivated by love. Um, that we need obedience to the words of Jesus, to what he has taught us. Third, personal instruction that we talked about last time, and this was the fact that the Holy Spirit is our teacher, and um, we need his presence. We need ears to hear him and to listen to his instruction as he teaches us, and as we read the word, that it's not a dead book, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and teaching us as we study it and read it. So today brings us to the fourth part of that, and this is the subject of perfect peace. <clears throat> Here in verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I gave three titles to this lesson. First of all, perfect peace, because it went with that first lesson on the introduction to the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and was a part of that closing part of that lesson. But you could also call this his first farewell. They're getting ready to leave the upper room. Everything we've studied so far was what Jesus was teaching them in the upper room at the end of the supper. And now they're getting ready to leave the upper room, and he's beginning to say farewell to them because he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going to spend this evening and this night in prayer and then be arrested and um, be crucified. And so this, we could say, is his final farewell. We could also call this a farewell gift as Jesus is going away. He's telling them about something he's giving them, something that he's leaving with them. And I want us to get the full context as to where this is sitting in his teaching. <clears throat> We've studied the, all the verses before this, but let's read starting at verse 28. He says, ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice. Because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So here Jesus is, he's going away and said, if you really loved me, you would be happy that I'm leaving. Growing up at a church that was in near a city like New Orleans, we saw a lot of people come and go over the years. 
because their jobs would bring them into New Orleans for a few years. And some of our best friends growing up were families that would come in, their dad would have a great job in New Orleans for a while, and then they would get moved somewhere else. And then there was lots of weeping and wailing going on at church because these people we love so dearly are leaving. And when it's a small church, it's really obvious, you know, when a family of 10 or 12 move away. And anyway, so over the years, I would get so depressed when a family would leave and, oh, woe is me. And I mean, every time, I mean, they would be gone just a couple weeks and there'd be a new family visit because they had gotten moved into the area. So I saw that as a normal thing, but it wasn't until I got older and I began to see what God would do with people when he moved them away. You know, they'd move away and find a spouse or they would move away and go to a really great school, or whatever it was that God was doing and God was working. And so I started learning that while it was sad for me, I should be excited for them. If I loved them enough, I was willing for God to send them wherever he wanted them to go, and me just adjust my attitude and be okay with that. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. If you love me, you would be happy that I'm going to my Father. Verse 29, and now I have told you before it come to pass. He said, I'm already telling you this, that I'm leaving. He says, so that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you. For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. In other words, he has nothing to do with me. But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. So they're getting up from the dinner, they're leaving the room, and I believe it was Matthew that points out that they, when they had sung in hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus said, let's go. They're probably getting up, putting on their sandals, getting ready to leave, and singing a hymn as they go. They would have been singing Psalm 18, actually, uh, sorry, Psalm 118, was sung by Jews at the end of the Passover meal. And as they're getting up and leaving the room and they're singing Psalm 118, they sing the line from Psalm 118, um, the Lord is my strength and salvation, uh, sorry, the Lord is my str song, strength and song and is become my salvation. So the Lord is getting ready to go out and to leave them. He's getting ready to die. But as he's giving this, this, these final words in the upper room. As you see, if you have a red letter edition, the next two chapter, the next three chapters have a lot of red letters. He's leaving the room, and he's going to give them some instruction along the wayside. But right here in the upper room, as he's getting ready to leave, he makes this comment, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. So these parting words for at the end of the Lord's Supper, he says, peace. Now, as we think about this word, peace, um, we instantly go, if we're studying the New Testament here, we inst instantly go to the Greek word. The Greek word is irene, or pronounced correctly, irene, but I feel funny rolling my tongue like that. I'm not Latin, so um, that feels funny. But it's that word for peace. It's actually where we get our name Irene, if you can see it in the spelling there. And it literally means peace. But we have to go deeper than just that Greek word 
to get the Jewish meaning of this. Because Jesus probably at this moment was not speaking in Greek. He was not probably not speaking in Aramaic. He was probably speaking in Hebrew. And what word would he have actually said? It would have been shalom, which we know is a Jewish greeting. That's how they greet one another. So there is the word shalom, which means peace. Peace be with you. I was doing some research about this word shalom this week, and um, one person said that there is so much carried in that one word, that it's not just a greeting of peace or rest or safety or security. Those are things that word can mean, but that it's, it's wishing you all the blessings of God on you as you are saying peace, shalom. Uh-huh. Yep. So we have this word for peace. What is Jesus saying? He's giving them this greeting, and they don't just use it for greeting. It's a hello and a goodbye. So you greet someone, you say shalom. You leave someone, you say shalom. He's leaving them, and he says, shalom. I leave with you. But it's not just a greeting. It's not just a farewell it's not just a goodbye he's giving them here. There's more to it than that. There's something really deep here Jesus is trying to explain them. And honestly, I don't think the disciples understood this until the day of Pentecost. He's talking about this peace. Let's look at three things about this peace. Number one is the possession of it. Whose peace is it? He says, my peace. My peace, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Look at that. It's very specific here. He says it's my peace. You read in the New Testament, you find Christ's peace, you find God's peace, you find this peace that the Spirit gives. I think it's the same peace. It's the peace of God, the peace of the Godhead. It passes all understanding. Jesus is telling the disciples this day, I'm giving you my peace. I'm going away. Shalom. But I'm leaving my peace with you. Look at, let's take this apart here. First of all, he calls it my peace. If you ever get in an experience, I think Pastor mentioned it last week maybe, where the peace of God is so powerful in your life. How is it? that I have such peace. I was talking to my mom about some things this week, and she said, I don't understand this peace that I have. Why is it a peace that passes all understanding? Because it's not our peace. It's God's peace. The peace I can generate is not the same. You know, I can go meditate or do yoga or stand on my head. I can't literally stand on my head. But if I could stand on my head, I tried one time to stand on my head, and it was actually in a gym with a trainer. And he decided that day it would be really fun if we did push-ups standing on our head. And so he's like, I can just hold your ankles up to keep you in position. I was strong enough to do it, but I couldn't. I didn't have the balance to do it anyway. It was embarrassing as he finally gets my feet standing upright. Once he got me into position, I could do it, but it was the getting me to anyway. And I, thankfully, I wasn't really thinking about the fact that anyone was watching us 
the next week I was in there and he and I were exercising and um, people who were bystanders were telling us what it looks like and it was embarrassing. But we could do all kinds of things to generate peace in our lives and it is not going to be the same kind of peace because this is God's peace. It's his peace. He said, first of all, my peace or peace, I leave with you. This word leave has the idea of going away and leaving something behind. He says, I'm leaving, I'm going away, but I am leaving something behind. Now, this tells me that this is, he's not telling them, I'm going away and the Holy Spirit's going to come, like he had said about the teaching. The Holy Spirit's going to come and he'll be your teacher. The Holy Spirit's going to come and he'll, there were things the Holy Spirit was going to do when he came. But he doesn't say this is going to happen later. He says this piece, I am leaving with you. It's a present tense verb. Right now, I'm leaving my peace with you. As as I'm going away, I'm leaving my peace. But the reason why I said earlier that I don't think the disciples really got what Jesus said was because what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus gets arrested, where did the disciples go? I mean, what did John do? I mean, um, yeah, no, Peter, he picks up the sword and whacks off the guy's ear. He's not experiencing this peace right now. They go, they split, they run and they hide. During the trial of Jesus, where are they? They're hiding. After Jesus' death, what are they doing? They're hiding. I mean, there's fear. Of course there would be fear. Why? Because they're operating on the physical level. They're not abiding in his peace. But he's already said, I'm leaving it with you. It's here. It's available. And I don't think it was until the day of Pentecost that they really grasped this when the Holy Spirit came on them, and instantly they start experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy. What's the third one? Peace. All of a sudden, they've got peace. Well, what happens when they get peace? They get bold. And they stand up and they start preaching and they're not worried about the persecution. They're not running and hiding anymore. Something has changed. In the face of all this tribulation, they can have confidence. Why? Because inwardly, they have peace. It's like that quote of John Wayne I have hanging on my study wall that Melanie gave me for Christmas a couple years ago. It said, courage is being scared, but saddling up anyway. Anyway, I don't know if John Wayne really said it or not, but it sounded like him. So I have it on the outside of my study. So when I go in and I study and I'm nervous about what I've got to preach, I walk out and I see John Wayne's quote right there. Courage is, you know, being scared, but saddling up anyway. And the honest thing of it, when we have the peace of the Holy Spirit, there may still be some nervousness. We may still be shaking. But there's so much peace inside, we can still, even with the nervousness, we can have the boldness to speak truth and to proclaim it because Jesus has left his peace. So he's going away. He says, I'm leaving my peace with you. Then he says, my peace I give unto you. He is gifting them his peace. He's giving them his peace. So first of all, we see the possession of peace. First of all, it is God's peace, and he has given it to his disciples. And we, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, we get to receive that same peace. We have the peace of God 
and we can experience it in our daily lives because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit that if we are following him and we're submitted to the Spirit, we're going to be constantly receiving that gift of peace that Jesus left behind. Then secondly, let's look at another part of the verse. We see its association. We had its possession. Now it's association. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Not as the world giveth. It's association. It's different from the peace that the world gives. Notice that I have a picture of trash. This week I was thinking about this. I'm like, what picture would really bring across this point? And I was really struggling with it. The peace that the world gives. I mean, you put a picture of a party. I didn't really want to do that. Um, you know, what am I going to put a picture of? I got to studying that word peace. Sorry, the word world. And it's that Greek word cosmos. John used it throughout his writings, both here and in 1 John especially. He uses this word cosmos for a few different things. First of all, he uses it for all humanity. So let's just say maybe that's exactly what he means here. This is a piece different than all humanity could give you. No other person, no person on this planet could bring you the peace that I'm bringing. Okay, let's say that he was, John also used it for unbelieving humanity. We've seen that specific times in the Gospel of John that the word world is used for people who re reject Jesus. For God so loved the world, that's all of humanity. But then we see that there are times where John uses the word to talk about the unbelieving, unbelieving humanity. John also uses it, and he uses it in his um, first epistle, 1 John. Um, he uses it to describe the world system as opposed to God's. So anything could go under there. You could really say anything that humanity could come up with to bring us peace. Any kind of pleasure. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, relationships with other people on any level. All of these things, even other Christians, cannot bring us the peace that Jesus Christ brings us. But what do we do? We often, even as Christians, we go to the world to try to find our peace. We think, if I just had another person in my life, if I just had these things, if I just experienced something different, we have all kinds of things that we think will bring us this inner peace. Yet this inner peace only comes from Jesus Christ. He's telling us this is an exclusive peace. Mine is different than everybody and everything else's. This is a peace that only I can give you. So we first of all have its possession, it's Christ's peace, and he's given it to us. Secondly, it's association. It's not the peace that the world gives. Number three, it's operation. It's operation. When you and I have this peace of God, there is so much power in our lives. Because look what he says. He tells them, I'm leaving this peace with you. I'm giving this peace to you. And then he says in the next sentence, <clears throat> let not your heart be troubled 
neither let it be afraid. Well, that's how this chapter started. Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. Now he's telling them again, don't let your heart be troubled. But now he's telling them how they can keep from being troubled. How is it that you can keep from running in the garden? How is it that you can stand and boldly proclaim the word? How is it that you can sing praise when you're shackled in the prison at midnight? How is it that disciples are going to be able to do all that they're going to do? How is it they're going to be able to produce these great works? How is it they were going to face witchcraft, demonism, all these things they were going to face? I mean, Laura and I have seen demonism in the Philippines. If you do not have the peace of God, you don't want to face demons. We were in the Philippines one time. I was riding on the back of um, a little tricycle. It's where the you know, there's the guy driving. I think it was uh, the motorcycle one, actually. And there's the sidecar, and Laura was sitting in the sidecar with our buddy's guitar. He was sitting on the back of the motorcycle, and I was sitting on the little bench on the back of the tricycle. And I'm looking up, and as we're driving along, I see these two people. And the one on the, they were driving on a motorcycle. The one on the back of the motorcycle looked at me, and it was the strangest looking person I had ever seen. Didn't even quite look like a person, shaved head, these evil eyes, and I felt as though something jumped at me. And my eyes were locked on this person's eyes. And I got chill bumps, and this fear ran over my body. And I just had to get away from there. And as we got away and we got back to the hotel, I said, Laura, A demon tried to possess me as we were driving down the road. She said, I know, I saw it. Laura saw, like she didn't see the demon, but she saw the demon-possessed person. She saw what was happening and knew what was happening. But inwardly, there was this peace. And it was like that demon ran into a plexiglass window. He didn't know it was there. It was just like, and I'm like, whatever that is, can't get to me, but I'm still getting out of here. Because I just, um, you know, and they were driving by. I mean, we're driving by each other. There was no, you know, stand around and cast out the demon or anything. And at that moment, I wasn't prepared for that. Mentally, spiritually, I was in just utter surprise at what was taking place. But yet, in my heart, there was peace where there should have just only been terror. It's amazing what the peace of God does. And the disciples were going to be facing all kinds of trouble. This word trouble here, this word trouble means to literally to be stirred. It's the word that was used when um, Paul talked about, John talked about the angel that would go down and stir the waters. He would trouble the waters is actually how it's translated in the King James. But that means it meant to stir. It meant to trouble. It meant to stir up the waters. It's used sometimes in a positive way in the scriptures. Jesus was moved with compassion, and sometimes that's the same Greek word here that's translated troubled here. It means he was stirred, but it can also mean agitated. It can be used in a negative way. It's like an ocean that is being stirred by a storm. And Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. We have a tendency when, um, when bad things happen that fear takes over 
and we tuck our tilt, and we turn, and we run. So the negative aspect of this is fear, dread, restlessness. Then secondly, he said, neither let it be afraid. Don't let your heart be afraid. And this word means timid, fearful. It's used in Deuteronomy chapter 20, the the Hebrew equivalent of it. Let's flip over there real quick. Deuteronomy 20. Moses says in verse 1, When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots, and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be when ye are come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, and shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. And this word, Hebrew word faint means fearful and timid, just like that Greek word we just looked at. He says, fear not and do not tremble. Neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. I would also encourage you to look up later Deuteronomy 121, 31.6. These are verses that when you look up in a Greek lexicon, um, this word, Deuteronomy 121 and 31.6 are mentioned. It's where the children of Israel were told, you're going into the promised land, but as you go in, don't be afraid because God who brought you out of Egypt is with you. No, I think it's interesting that Jesus would make this statement because if the disciples know the Old Testament scriptures, which if they're going to know anything, they're going to know Deuteronomy, right? And so he's telling them as they're leaving, as they're about to leave the upper room, don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Well, when they were told that in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, it was added to it because the Lord thy God, which brought you out of Egypt. Well, what were they doing right here in the upper room? Anybody remember? Anybody remember why they had met in the upper room? Passover. What was Passover for? To help them remember what? Being delivered from the death angel. God delivering them from Egypt. And so there was this whole thing. They were supposed to ask, Dad, what do these things mean? And the little youngest child in the family was supposed to ask that, and then Dad would tell them about what God had done to deliver them from Egypt. They're at Passover mill, and Jesus is using the same words. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Don't let your hearts tremble. Don't let your hearts be afraid. How could they not be afraid? When the peace of God came in their hearts, they could act on that peace and not be afraid. Look at Colossians 3 and verse 15. Colossians 3 and verse number 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let it rule in your hearts. Let it be in control. Let it have the authority. Let it control you. This is that power. It's the reason why I have a rocket here. I mean, that's, a rocket is so powerful to lift all of that weight off of a platform, we'll call it. To lift it off into outer space, what a powerful, powerful thing. 
And we have the same type of power dwelling inside of us. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be troubled. We don't have to be timid. But we can be bold if the power of God, if his peace is ruling in our hearts. Look at one more, Philippians 4 and verse 7. Philippians 4 and verse 7. I am still not used to this new Bible. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It will keep your heart and your mind. So let's bring this together here. What is the operation of peace? The peace that Christ gives enables action. What is that action? It enables us to handle trouble that shakes our hearts and to face fear that's in our hearts that makes us timid. A Christian never has to be timid. And that's what the liberal world is trying to make us be in America today. They're trying to force us to be timid. If you have a wrong opinion, they're going to fact check you and put that little faded thing. I've got friends that every day get that faded black cover over their Instagram posts that said, this is inaccurate information. It has been fact-checked. Well, I laugh every time. I go, I wonder what they said today. And so you click on it, and it gives accurate information about what's happening today. But it doesn't fit the political agenda of the left, and so therefore, it is considered a falsehood, even though it's backed up by science, backed up by facts, backed up by what's really happening in the world today. What's happening? They're trying to make us feel stupid, feel timid, feel embarrassed to speak truth. But if we have the peace of God, we can be bold. We don't have to be afraid. afraid. We don't have to be fearful. The peace of God enables us in the storms of life to have power. I love this quote by Herbert Lockyer. And when I was talking to my mom this week, I sent this to her. And she said, this explains it so well because she'd been thinking about the peace of God in, my, in relationship to my sister's death. Peace, Herbert Lager said, such as the spirit produces is not a state of spiritual coma, a condition of mental or spiritual insensibility, but a conscious resting in the will and word of God. It is a deep, perfect, settled peace of heart and mind amid the turbulent experiences of life. And I put these two pictures up here. The peace of God is not picture number one up here. The peace of God is this right here. It's when the storm's going on and you're the one in the boat. You could say that the peace of God is your heart and mind experiencing this while this is going on. That during the midst of the storms of life, it is this overwhelming peace but we must be focused and resting on the word of God and on the will of God, understanding that I am in the center of God's will and I have to rest in his promises. When my sister was killed, we experienced this. The morning we found out that she'd been killed and we didn't know what was going on, there was so much peace suddenly flooded our hearts. But we had to act on that peace at that moment. 
or we were our fear and worry because instantly I remember us starting to question what all happened. What happened to her? All we knew is that she had been murdered during the night and her husband had found her when he came home from the night shift. So our minds began to wonder what happened to her? Who killed her? What did they do to her before they killed her? These are the things that we're worried about and we're starting to think about, but we had to grab hold of the fact that we didn't know and we had to trust God. We had to rest in him. And no matter what they had done, Christ said to forgive as he forgave. So we stopped right there and we made a conscious, purposeful decision to forgive the murderer, whoever that would turn out to be. Later that afternoon, when we found out that it was my brother-in-law, there was that moment of fear. There was that moment of beginning to, I you were just so shaken by it. I mean, my mom um, fell down when she found out who had done it. I mean, she couldn't even stand. But yet instantly, there had to be that. Instantly, as soon as we find out, and my brother ran out of the courthouse, and the cops are all around him because they're afraid he's going to try to go in and kill my brother-in-law. And anyway, um, when, when the, they found, caught up with Jason and out in the um, yard of the courthouse and my uncle ran after him too, um, Jason said, I just had to get fresh air. I just had to get out of there. He wasn't running to hurt anybody. He just needed out of the building. And Jason said, as we were standing there, he told me and my uncle, he said, you know, Jesus said we had to forgive 70 times seven. I just didn't know it would all be in one day. My brother felt like at that point he had already exhausted all of he was capable of forgiving. Yet the peace of God instantly entered all of us, and again, we were able to forgive. It was hardest for me a few days later whenever I got a phone call that through an unbelievable chain of people, the woman that my brother-in-law had had an affair with had confessed it to one of her relatives. Well, her relative had told a friend of hers, which was a nurse that worked with a nurse friend of mine. The nurse came home from work and told her mom. Her mom, who was also a good friend of our family, decided our family had to know so that we could tell the investigators there was a woman to look for, which they already assumed that and they were already looking. And so anyway, I get the phone call. They decided to call me. And so this woman proceeds to tell me about this affair. I got so angry inside. When I found out my sister had been murdered, the peace of God was so overwhelming and the decision to forgive was really honestly easy because the Holy Spirit was empowering that forgiveness. When I found out it was my brother-in-law, again, same thing. This was to a different level to me as a brother. And I was so angry about this at the first moment. The, the, this friend that was like an extra mom to me is trying to give me some encouragement, trying to remind me that, you know, if we're in the center, uh, that we're in the center of God's will. She made, it this, she made the comment this way. She said, God has chosen your family for this trial. And she's like, that sounds harsh to say, but God has chosen you. Their son had almost had a leukemia sometime before, so she knew exactly what it was to be in a difficult trial. I get off the phone, and I'm overwhelmed. Now I've got to go inside and tell my dad this. 
I've got to call the investigators. I call the, the private detectives and tell them what's, or not private detectives, the detectives for the parish and tell them what I've just learned. And it confirmed what their suspicions were. And anyway, um, a few minutes later, the phone rang. And it was a good old friend I hadn't seen in a long time, Lee McGorick. He was calling from off-seas. He'd been working off-seas. And he began to encourage me. Aaron, you've got to forgive. You've got to focus on God's word. And I don't remember all that he said. But as he was talking to me, I got so much peace. It wasn't Lee's peace. It was the peace of God again in my heart. And I had that moment of choice. Am I going to act? Or am I going to be resentful? Am I going to be timid? Am I going to be fearful? Am I going to be unforgiving? And in that moment, I got so much power and so much peace from the Holy Spirit to be able to forgive once again, to be able to face the whole issue with the grace of God. But it's only through the peace of God. And I tell those stories because I wanted you to see that it's not always an easy thing. But the, when the peace of God comes, we have to act on it. That's why Jesus said, I'm leaving my peace with you. But you have a responsibility. Don't be fearful. Don't be timid. Don't follow your heart. Control your heart. Or rather, put your heart under my control and let the peace of God rule your hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have given us your peace. Lord, I pray that you would help every one of us to experience this week the peace that passes all understanding. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to remember the moment we experience your peace. Dear, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of a temptation, the moment we experience your peace, I pray that you would remind us to act on that peace. That we would make the choice to control our heart, to put rather our hearts under your control and allow your peace to control us that we would not be fearful that we would not be troubled, that we would not allow our hearts to be timid or shaken. But Lord, I thank you, Jesus, that you provided for us this peace. You provided a way for us to make peace with God on the cross. And you produce peace in our hearts through your indwelling Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for your peace. Pray that you'd bless Brother Joe as he preaches this morning. Pray that you'd speak to all of us through your word. In Christ's name we pray.